This gives us a way to systematize development of creativity and innovation. It's not just a random thing that may happen. It's structured. It's purposeful. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. With ASU being labeled as the number one school for innovation, it's only natural that we include design thinking as a podcast topic. Why? Well, synonyms of the word innovation like shift, deviation, newness, and leading edge are a few of the ones that seem to connect well. In fact, in my research on this topic, I came across an article co-authored by our very own President Michael Crow titled Design Thinking in Higher Education, published in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. The idea of design thinking has been around since the 60s, evolving through the creative and engineering fields. References to IDEO, Design Firm, and Stanford's Hazo Plattner Institute of Design, aka D-School, are credited with much of how design thinking is practiced today. This method of solution-based thinking moves through five principles that allow for the challenging of assumptions. Empathy involves identifying the audience to create a better understanding of the user. Define is where the questions are asked in order to formulate the problem. Ideate provides the time for brainstorming possible solutions through activity. Prototype involves the building of multiple representations and sample solutions. Finally, test, where the solutions are tried. Involvement within each of these principles is meant to push beyond the boundaries with creativity and openness, allowing for mistakes and messiness to occur in order for effective solutions to be developed. It's important to note that the process does not need to be linear especially when moving through the principles can potentially flourish into more complex ideas. These can quickly morph into designs for problems that had not been identified or realized at the start. Although design thinking has a significant role in the business sector, there has been some practice within academia as well. Universities and colleges all over the world have been implementing the design thinking method to foster new learning experiences for students. Although there is interest in higher education to utilize this approach, it's not always easy to put into action. In the Chronicle of Higher Education article, Can Design Thinking Redesign Higher Ed? Leticia Britos Cabanaro, the lead instructor in the Teaching and Learning Studio and the co-director of the University Innovation Fellows Program at Stanford University, states that the biggest problem budding design thinkers face when they return to campus after they've participated in one of their offered workshops is coming back to a system that might not be designed for this way of teaching and learning. As higher education grows and new learning experiences are designed, more emphasis has been placed on teamwork. The design thinking process can easily be used for collaborative efforts by groups communicating, brainstorming, sharing, developing, designing together for real-world problem-solving. After all, as they say, two heads are better than one. In today's episode, we will discuss our experiences with design thinking and what we think about its place in higher education. Oh wait, there's more! Stay tuned in after our discussion about design thinking as we move into our new segment called Hot Topics. Today's chat will be around the new National Quality Standards for Online Learning. My name is Celia Kachoitiwa from the instructional design team at ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are Jeanette Senecal, Aaron Kraft, 
Right. Well, thank you for joining me today with our talk on design thinking. So, so far, what have your experiences been with design thinking? Well, many, many, many feels like years ago, I incidentally got to sit into a presentation by a representative from IDEO, one of the firms that you mentioned in your introduction. And I actually was there sort of by accident just to help manage a uh, mediation of a webinar related to the the presentation. And I had never heard of the organization. I was not familiar with this concept of design thinking. But the presenter was focusing on sort of this idea of empathy and how they used it to approach actually working through improvements of equipment for um, healthcare organizations like um, patient trays in hospital rooms and how you know, the difference of half an inch could be tremendous for somebody who could barely move. And it was fascinating to me to see that one of the biggest technologies that they relied upon to do this work was sticky notes. And <laughs> it was sort of a light bulb moment that's, you know, it's pardon the pun, it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah, I don't think I ever had a formal introduction or experience with it. I recall back when I was a teacher, an English teacher in Shanghai, for Pearson schools there, we would do, I think, monthly teacher development workshops. We'd have to go into the center of the city and, and all meet in some building. And, you know, it's a day spent just becoming a better teacher. And I noticed uh, there was a pattern that we would begin our meetings with an activity. And one day we did an activity. They gave us something to the effect of uh, like tape, some toilet paper rolls, and uh, what was it? And spaghetti or pasta noodles. And we were supposed to build the biggest tower. It had to be bigger than uh, the other teams. We were separated into teams and then given these ingredients or whatever and, and, and supposed to make the biggest tower. And um, I found out later, and I, I loved it. I had such a great time doing that. <laughs> and uh, I found out later, oh, that was a design thinking activity, right? And I, I think it's a lot less formal than what we're going into here. But that had to be my first introduction into the, into the experience of it. Yeah, I think a lot of the times the experience have, have been like that, where it's more informal and they take some of the activities and do it just for ways to bring groups together, almost like teamwork Kick or team building. Yeah. Icebreakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you don't realize that it's one portion of a bigger piece. And when I think about design thinking, one of my things is because you talked about an activity of all these pieces and having to try to figure out how to build. And we've mm -hmm. done that in our meetings. Um, some team meetings before where we've been given random objects and we've had to kind of create something out of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so when I think about this, one of the first things that has popped into my head as I was, you know, doing more deeper thinking into design thinking was it's like buying furniture from Ikea and never looking at the instruction manual <laughs> and just seeing all these pieces wondering what would happen if I don't ever look at that manual and figure out exactly how to put this together? Because <laughs> but hopefully not quite that frustrating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I, I love that example. And it can be, yeah, it can be frustrating. But I mean, that's that's all I could picture was you know staring at a box of all these pieces and not really knowing exactly what's going to come from it. Um, and you know what you want to get to, but sometimes, you know, it doesn't always, you end up with those extra five pieces where you're like, well, it's standing. What are these other yeah. pieces for? Well, it's so. amazing that, you know, given the same ingredients, each group comes up with a completely separate way to conceptualize the tallest tower. 
Absolutely. But one of the things that design thinking is supposed to focus on is the actual user and what the person, the actual human is needing out of the brainstorming and, you know, the whole process of moving through the the design thinking method. And I think that's one of the pieces that pulls it apart from all others is that it's focusing on the actual user and not an end product. So in that way, it ends up opening up to a bunch of other ideas and not necessarily just one. What differences do you see between design thinking and the traditional lecture-based course when thinking about using this process in higher education or in teaching in general? Well, on the rant card front, my initial reaction to this topic was like, oh no, fad of the last couple of years, we're looking to design thinking or design principles to solve all of our problems in education. And it's it's the redeeming process that will bring forward all the answers. So then moving beyond that and actually looking at some of the evidence and some of the process pieces, I kind of see this as a way to emphasize the constructivist frame for learning where instructors have an opportunity to help students uncover knowledge rather than to try to just push information to them. And so I think there's definitely some compatible philosophical pieces that connect here. Right. You know, I was reading the resources that are posted in our show notes and uh, one article, Design Thinking for Higher Education, I made a couple of good points about how design thinking, I think, can integrate effectively into higher education. And I'm, I'm quoting the article because I did not realize that this is something that could be integrated into higher ed. So mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a passenger on this ride today. But to bring what I read to the forefront, uh, they're talking about how basically higher education uh, has this foundation of being a traditional and stable environment. However, to adapt to the future, we need uh, new models that uh, embrace organizational innovation, response, responsivity, and adaptation. So I, I can see the need for it. It now makes sense to me why we have these classrooms that used to be showcased a few years back when I started here. They were built differently or they were renovated. So no longer were they like stadium seating courses, but instead you had tables placed throughout the room. Each space had its own set of uh, like markers and, and, st- and things to write on and, and tools for people to collaborate together as a group instead of focusing on the, the lecture at the head of the room. I thought, kind of like Janelle, I thought this was a fad, but now I'm seeing, well, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe there is something to this, especially if they put so much money into renovating it. <laughs> they must really believe that there is something to be taken from it. And so to anchor this, to anchor those principles that you alluded to, a lot of times those five principles are connected to sort of five action verbs. So the first is empathize. The second is to define. The third is to ideate. The fourth is to prototype. And the fifth is to test, right? So when I think about this in connection with learning, teaching all the activities that occur in our everyday environment, I think of it as a way to kind of address those those wicked problems. When you don't know where to start, this gives you a systematic way to start. So for students who are in an engineering program and they only know very little about the principles behind problems they're trying to solve, this is kind of a regularized way you can gently introduce someone into going through uh, an understandable process to solve a problem. I like what Aaron said about the need to adapt. And one of the things that 
when we think about higher education, we do think about that more traditional lecture-based approach where as much as we talk about innovation and change and new learning and new teaching methods, we often still go back to that static traditional lecture approach as our thought of what higher education is. And we forget that, oh, wait, there are things moving forward. And I think that this is just one of those pieces that helps us to look forward and to look at what's needed. And when we think about learners, one of the big things in higher education right now is that we have a lot of learners who are not the same, that they're not the traditional, quote unquote, traditional student. And we're trying to find new experience or we're trying to create new ways of bringing in all types of learners. And I think yeah. that's where um, a lot of what the article from uh, Stanford in our resources hits on is looking at new learners. And actually, a lot of the articles that I read on design thinking and higher education was focused on how we need to look at new learners in higher ed. Right. You know, I actually copy and pasted a paragraph from the Design Thinking for Higher Education article because it really blew my mind when I read it. So if you'll allow me. I'll read it. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> the roots of modern higher education date back to 11th century Europe, where the first universities were formed from guilds of student practitioners and expert instructors. In this system, knowledge was accumulated by experts and passed to apprentices, a tradition that to this day informs the self-governing, faculty-centric nature of university design. So that absolutely blew my mind. And then you can see how a model like that would make a lot more sense if you're dealing with, I think it's economies of scale. If you're dealing with a smaller student body, you're dealing with more uh, intimate personal environments for the teachers and the students to interact. But at this point, we have... Uh, just a growing population of students and a lot of universities might be cutting funding. You need to find innovative ways to be able to pass on from the expertise from the lecturer to the students. But we need a different model now. Well, to your history lesson point there, information is no longer scarce. Information mm -hmm. is available mm -hmm, to everyone true. all the time around us for the most part. Yeah. So if our our master scholars are no longer the only keepers of the information and the knowledge. How is their role shift? How can design thinking inform the way that they help those learners, those novice learners get to the point of competency that they're setting out to do? Right, right. You have to change the model. Right. And you hit the word competency. And when we think about education right now, and the learners who are coming in from K-12 who have begun learning more on a competency-based education type of curriculum or concept-based, and they're no longer just book, paper, pencil anymore. We're also having to think about how they're learning in K-12 and coming into higher education, where a lot of their learning is more on the um, collaborative, more active, more... Um, Oh, I appreciate how this, how design thinking enables physical movement. I'm a guy, I'm always moving around. I introduced myself to our front desk person because I, I told them, I'm like, 
I'm going to be walking in front of you back and forth to the bathroom or the kitchen or to somebody else's office about 20 times a day. So let me just <laughs> shake your hand now and, and get to know your name. But really, I, I do learn better, I think, in motion because sitting still for long periods of time is just absolutely soul destroying sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, and it, you have to sometimes. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you can help it, I think it's always better to engage physically at, uh, at some level, whether it's like a mental exertion mm -hmm. um, or if it's a physical creation of something. And, you know, these redesigned classrooms that allow for that, I, I think, are could be very beneficial for facilitating that you were saying active construction of knowledge. So I can appreciate how design thinking is based on this idea that you're meant to be on your feet, active and engaged. Well, and I think too that we sometimes have an association with this idea of innovation and creativity. They're just free floating abstractions. This gives us a way to systematize development of creativity and innovation. It's not just a random thing that may happen it's structured it's purposeful and it provides a means to make sense of things that are abstract we're moving away from the passive right so, wasn't it said somewhere that the students we're teaching today are going to be employed in jobs that don't exist yet yes yeah. that's one of my favorite so mm -hmm. this is a way to give them the skills to be able to tackle problems that don't have a defined solution. It's true. So we're talking about design thinking in the teaching sense, but what about as an instructional designer? How do you see design thinking as having an impact on things like faculty support or even faculty design and development? I think it might open the door to this idea of prototyping, actually. You know, when I'm when I'm meeting with a faculty member who's thinking through where or whether it makes sense to change the design of a course or the way they approach an assessment or something, I think a little bit about this prototyping idea is giving, um, for lack of a better word, a nudge or permission, if you will, to try interventions on an incremental basis. Develop a prototype of a different sort of assignment or a different way of, of assessing your students authentically and then put it out there or put a portion of it out there into the course, evaluate the results and see if that makes sense and then feed it back into your next revision cycle. So it takes this sort of, I have to fix everything right now, back down to more of a granular, well, can I prototype one tiny little part? Can I make sense of solving one defined part of the problem and see what happens. This reminds me a lot of case-based scenarios that you see in graduate level courses or doctoral level courses where the students are given uh, a real life scenario that again, may not have an actual answer, but instead it's, it's ill-structured and you have to, now I, I think in those kind of courses, the students are given a lot of guidance from beginning to end in, in a lot of ways. Whereas this is allowing for, um, or e even encouraging to break the habits of the mind and entertain possibilities that you, you didn't even realize you might have been shutting off in the first place. One of the articles was interesting, and I can't remember which one, but it was, they were talking about how they were sent out to interview the student population to look for a problem. Mm -hmm. They actually had to sit and, and, and grab people walking by and ask them if they would 
uh, talk with them a minute and, and so they could identify a problem to be solved. And I found that hilarious, <laughs> mostly because it wasn't me having to do it. <laughs> it sounds grueling, but the idea being that, you know, this is a human-centered approach. So let's find a human-centered problem that needs to be uh, approached, entertaining even the most wildest of possibilities in order to come to an answer. All right. So as you say, the human-centered approach, one of the resources that um, we included in this podcast was about accessibility and the impact that design thinking could have on accessibility. Where do you see that impact lying? Empathy. This is so important. And as I started to read through some of those resources that are in the show notes, I immediately drew a connection to universal design for learning and those guidelines that we frequently refer to to try and make, you know, learning materials and, you know, artifacts as accessible and meaningful to the widest swath of individuals as we possibly can. And I think the fact that uh, design thinking principles start step one with empathy is a really important part there. That connection is is key to making sure that the outputs, if you will, are functional, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about accessibility. I think the way we design our roads and our sidewalks and our buildings and all the way down to the more intangible things like our curriculum is thought first in mind with an able-bodied person, somebody who doesn't have uh, challenges and hurdles that they have to go through just to perform everyday tasks. Mm -hmm. So speaking to Jeanette's point, you know, empathy is critical here because you're having to all of a sudden see the world in a different way, which it may not be readily present to you or re readily viewable to you. And in that, you can start to pick apart how somebody with a challenge might see the world and what they would need in order to access it, for lack of a better term there. But yeah, you're basically trying to break down what's there, reassemble it and in order, through empathy, in order to grant accessibility. And I think that's, that's the approach that's required until we can start building things from the ground up with accessibility in mind. And I think that's why design thinking can be so powerful is because if we start from the product and what we're looking for, it kind of closes up our mind. We're searching for one solution, whereas when we start with empathy and we're really trying to dig deeper and understand who the person is, the who the human is that we're trying to create for, we start to see that there are a lot of different pieces and parts that could be needed and it could be created. And it's not just one fix for everything. Okay, well, thank you for joining me in that design thinking, thinking <laughs> <laughs> and conversation. So let's go ahead now and transfer some of that thinking over from design to standards with today's hot topic. Hot topics. National standards for quality online learning. Quality Matters and the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance have built new standards as part of their national standards for quality and are separated by each facet of online learning, teaching, courses, and programs. For this hot topic segment, we'll focus on the teaching framework. The National Standards for Quality 
online teaching, which includes eight categories, professional responsibilities, digital pedagogy, community building, learner engagement, digital citizenship, diverse instruction, assessment and measurement, and instructional design. It's important to note that these standards have been developed with K-12 in mind. What sticks out to you when reviewing these standards? I didn't realize there was a need for this in the first place. Are, is there a large contingent of online K-12 teachers? I think it's definitely growing. Yeah. Yeah. There must be if, there's, if mm-hmm. it warrants its mm-hmm. own uh, peer review quality standards. Yeah, I don't have statistics to you know share right now, but I certainly see advertisements and uh, even just within the school system that my own child is enrolled. I see more and more every day about blended and online learning for K-12 populations. So I definitely think it's a growing, you know, anecdotally, I definitely think it's a growing marketplace. Um, and as far as standards, I think, you know, the thing that stuck out to me immediately about this is, again, loving the sort of neat little pigeonhole boxes, the structure always appeals to me, but the way that they differentiated this set of standards to the teaching dimension, mm-hmm. the program dimension, and sort of the course dimension, which I think of that course dimension kind of like your your everyday kind of quality matters design and development features as opposed to sort of that facilitation skill part that they're getting at with the online teaching, mm-hmm. which is where we're, we're taking a look at today. Um, within the uh, standards that they've identified, I just was so ridiculously excited to see that they literally had a whole section devoted to instructional design. Mm-hmm. And that made me do a little happy dance on the inside. So <laughs> I would agree. Um, in the teaching standards, they make a note that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to use the instructional design Correct. standards depending on what your program is like. So right. let's say you have instructional designers you're working with already. You wouldn't necessarily have to use that within the teaching part of it. I love that they address the reality, though. Yeah. So many teachers mm-hmm. are doing all of these tasks and more. And so explicitly addressing that to me just feels so inclusive. Mm-hmm. It's very well thought out, very detailed. And I appreciate I appreciate that they broke it apart into those three frameworks because it shows that it's not all just one piece, that there are different elements that bring it all together to grow an actual effective online program. And to me, I read a lot of the the language here. Almost it's empowering. I think it reaffirms that sometimes... Again, teachers are doing everything with nothing at times. And this sort of, it underscores the fact that they're doing good work. And even if they're very focused on certain standards and learning outcomes for their students, they're probably already inherently doing some of this. And this just gives a sort of checklist almost to validate the good work that they're they're already doing. Yeah, much like the QM standards that we build by, I think if you abide by these criteria, then you'll have a very... Uh, you're likely to have a very successful experience. Yeah. And the language and the exemplars are very clear here, which again, I appreciate the fact that they've tried to bring this, this framing in this language to a very real world kind of level. Mm -hmm. I really, I had a laugh. I had a laugh at standard E digital citizenship. (laughs) It's critical, right? (laughs) Especially since you're teaching online. And uh, I, I think if anybody needs 
modeling for digital citizenship. It's the K-12 crowd. So digital citizenship, I think this is funny because it brings to mind those stories you hear on the news or in the newspaper where their social media profile outed them somehow. Like the, there was something inappropriate on there mm -hmm. and now they're no longer teaching for the school system or something like that. Because it, it does happen from time to time and we all have our personal lives, right? So trying to model digital citizenship while trying to, you know, live your life as a K-12 instructor, that's a very precarious tightrope to be walking, the solution, I think, is just shut it down, make it private. If nobody can see what you're doing, then you can't get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sat in many meetings, especially after a big news story came out here in Phoenix about teachers and their social media accounts. And it's a, it can be a big deal. Oh, and it was at that time, um, the news actually searched for teachers to look at their social media accounts. They were doing a story on it and they did interview some teachers or they went to their homes and tried to talk to them about, you know, what they saw on their social media accounts. So it does happen. Um, but I think that was probably pre-focus on digital citizenship, and it's probably why it's such a sure. big deal to... Oh. Yeah, <laughs> to make it them. private. Yeah. <laughs> <Shut> it <down. laughs> well, yeah, the potential for our professional worlds to collide more visibly with our personal worlds. It's certainly, again, so this role modeling piece, that digital footprint part of digital citizenship and being mindful mm -hmm. and conveying that to learners that, you know, um, the internet is forever. <laughs> you would pick that one out, wouldn't you, Aaron? <laughs> I think it was the second one. The online teacher establishes standards for learner behavior that are designed to ensure academic integrity and appropriate use of the internet that adhere to program level policies. So, I mean, it's sort of hinting at that. And here I thought you were going to go with intellectual property and fair use standards <laughs> and I, adhering to copyright requirements. Only because I lived in China and was taught not to care for the first half of my teaching career. For our listeners, that's a callback to our copyright episode where we yes. discussed the uh, sticky wicket of downloading copies of YouTube videos. Yeah. Check it out. I got my hand caught in the bear trap on that one. <laughs> I think the other thing that these new standards do for online learning in K-12 is it validates it as real teaching, as real learning, because I think there is still some thought that it's just students sitting in front of a computer watching videos all day, you know, and getting the learning that way. I think this makes, this puts a bigger focus on the human approach too virtual learning or not virtual learning, sorry, online learning. Yeah, no, I was, I was talking to my mortgage broker a few years back when I had just, you know, purchased a house or got the loan for a house. And uh, he was telling me, he called me at the office and, you know, he saw that I worked at ASU and he was like, oh, uh, my son just started there. And he was saying, yeah, hey, my son wanted to take an online math class, but I told him, no, no cheating that first year. You're, you're taking a real math class. And then he goes, by the way, what do you do? And I said, oh, I assist with the building and maintenance of online programs here at ASU. <laughs> <laughs> Brief pause, and then we ended the conversation. Awkward. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Well, that was a fun, hot topic to go over. Looking at standards. How many can say that looking at standards <laughs> is fun? <laughs> Good times. <laughs> All right. Well, let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Feel free to tweet us with how you use design thinking and the impact it has had on creating solutions for you. 
And we also hope you're enjoying this extra bit of hot topic chatter as much as we do. We love hearing from our listeners. I'd like to thank the ever so wonderful podcast team, Jeanette, along with our participant and producer, Aaron. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. My name is Celia Kachoitiwa from the Academic Innovation Team, not Academic Innovation <laughs> My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from the Instructional Design Team at, right? Or do I say Academic Operations? I think we've just been referring to ourselves as Instructional Design Team out of Edson. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from the Instructional Design Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Edson. Damn it. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from the Instructional Design Team at ASU's Edson College of... N- <laughs> Why can I do this? <laughs> <laughs> My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from the Instructional Design Team at Edson College of Nursing and Health... <laughs> oh my gosh. IDT. Her name is Celia Kutrantino. <laughs> Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. ASU's Edson College of. That does not roll. No, it does not. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs>